Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle Radio. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. This week, we're meeting another of the inspirational thought leaders and innovators that UBS supports and celebrates through its Global Visionaries programme. This time, we're exploring the work of Earth Security, founded in 2011 in London by Alejandro Litovsky, an Argentinian-born entrepreneur, to make natural capital a central theme in the emerging field of sustainable investments. Alejandro has created an impact investment incubator that combines data, design thinking, and a global network of stakeholders to scale business solutions and impactful enterprises that work with nature as an asset. Alejandro recently called in at Monocle's Zurich HQ to explain more about his work and objectives with Earth Security. Joining him in the Monocle Radio studios, and a most welcome returning guest on this programme, was Tom Hall, Global Head of Social Impact and Philanthropy at UBS. I began by asking Alejandro first to explain the Earth Security origin story. Earth Security's mission is to unlock solutions for planetary resilience. And what I mean by that is that we are at a point where climate change and and biodiversity loss are starting to profoundly challenge the way we live, the way we build cities, the way we produce food and energy and access to water. And building resilience to these challenges will require a bit of a step change in, in how we understand those pressure points and how we can come up with new solutions that drive sustainable and more impact economies. Well, yeah, and I guess maybe it's helpful to actually talk about what we mean when we use these phrases. What's your definition of impact economy and why is understanding that, defining it maybe quite explicitly, so important when it comes to trying to safeguard the future of the planet? We come at it from a very specific perspective, which is that we've historically undermined nature and eroded you know, natural ecosystems on which we depend And in many ways, we now need to do the opposite. We need to be able to build resilience to these changes. And that will require companies and governments to harness and invest in in nature and and what we'd call natural assets in a different way. And so if you take the example of coastal cities, in particular across the tropics, I mean, this is where most of the population is concentrating, is hugely exposed to more extreme weather events and doesn't have really the funding to invest in, in resilient infrastructure. But many of these cities, you know, we find through our impact intelligence, you know, they actually overlap with the mangrove ecosystem. In fact, mangroves, which are coastal forests, they're providing $65 billion a year in protection and avoided losses. So the key question for us is how do you harness that value and think about the impact of those natural assets and how do you invest in that? And I'm happy to share some examples, you know, of of what that means in practice. Oh, well, yeah, I was going to ask you specifically about that. Can you tell us about some of these initiatives or projects, you've alluded to them already, that have delivered that impact, that value generation? Yeah, absolutely. And so let me give you two examples. You know, we, we work very closely with UBS and UBS Optimus Foundation to drive this work. We're working at the moment in Brisbane, Queensland, which is one of these global hotspots of a of city that is hugely exposed to climate change, where where insurance premiums are growing disproportionately faster than the rest of Australia and where the mangrove ecosystem is one of the biggest in the world. So we're piloting what we call a mangrove bond for coastal resilience, bringing together insurers, governments, banks and, and companies that are exposed to these rising climate risks and that need to find a new way to invest in nature. So we're connecting 
proven projects on the ground that are restoring these mangroves. We are calculating the dollar value of protection of, of those coastal assets. And we're trying to create that design process, you know, an innovation process that would help banks, insurers and companies to to start to invest in mangroves as a type of coastal infrastructure. In Indonesia, you know, we're building a partnership between an industrial group that has assets on the coast and a coalition of NGOs and scientists that have been working to prove in 12 communities in Indonesia building a method for how do you use mangrove restoration as a form of coastal protection with buy-in from, from local communities as stewards of that ecosystem, you know, finding better livelihoods because they now can cultivate sustainable shrimp more effectively using those mangroves. Now, these models already exist, but they're not connected. You know, they're not connected to companies. They're not connected to governments. And so what we need to do is to build that connectivity through new, new ways of, of funding and scaling these opportunities. And if you think about it, Jakarta is, is sinking. They're needing to change the location of the capital. And we're not paying attention to the green infrastructure that's already available, that it's there. And then there's actually sequestering carbon in the process. So there's a bit of a step change that needs to happen. And while these solutions are there and they're proven, they're just not finding the route and access to, to the mainstream for policymakers and investors. And that's our role in building that connectivity. Well, yeah, and I guess driving these connections and, and trying to actually deliver meaningfully is where, as you've pointed out, Alejandro, the likes of UBS can help. And Tom, let me bring you back in here because we've spoken before in some detail about the fundamental importance of education and working with partners and visionaries that are in those spaces. I guess if we look at this particular area, uh, climate action, I think it's what is it UNSDG 13, I think speaks to climate action. It's pretty obvious that there is this urgent need for change. But tell us a bit about why this area specifically and the kind of examples that Alejandro is setting there, why they resonate so keenly for your, you and your colleagues and also for clients that you speak to about these matters. At a fundamental level, if we don't look after the planet we all live on, then we don't have a future. So, so I think it, it deeply matters. And, you know, you ask the question around impact economy, like what, what does that ultimately mean? It means that we value the, the actual value of people, so the value of an educated person to an economy, and the value of the planet to our economy in allocations of capital. And right now, that system is, is, is broken, ultimately. Like, we're in a situation whereby, and I was in Vietnam last week with 15 clients as part of our climate collective who are looking to try and identify business opportunities like Alejandro's and others where we can rapidly move the dial on not just sequestering carbon, but creating what we call nature-based solutions where people and planet are living together in harmony in a way that's sustainable. And one of the challenges we saw in Vietnam is a lot of low-middle-income countries, they've got growth ambitions, rightly so. Their people want to live prosperous lives, rightly so. But we can't afford to do that at the expense of the planet. So what we need to try and do is create new types of business models that genuinely see the value of both the ecosystem and create opportunities to market. So, you know, Alejandro was touching on things like shrimp farming. We were literally seeing this firsthand where you've got this tension between a micro shrimp farmer wanting to chop down mangrove in order to produce more shrimp because the mangrove itself doesn't have a monetary value today. So for $500, they're taking down maybe a hectare of mangroves. That's 840 tons. It's, you know, as much as maybe three families might use in a lifetime, right? That's just going for $500. And that's crazy because that has way more than $500 worth of value to the global economy. 
that hectare of mangrove. Yet we haven't created a system that can create that transfer of value to that farmer to prevent them from chopping that down in the first place. And until we do, you're not going to change the economic interests of these local communities. So so really trying to find business models that, that incentivize people in the right way is critical. We're actually working on a similar program in Liberia called the Gola program, which is not in mangroves, but it's in, in rainforest, where we're literally looking to try and build business models that incentivize this kind of people and planet partnership in a way that's sustainable. So looking at agroforestry, so growing cocoa inside the rainforest, that can generate revenue for the farmers, right? But the revenue from the cocoa alone is probably not enough to disincentivize them to clear because they could probably produce more if they clear the rainforest. So we're also looking at providing carbon credits and biodiversity credits for keeping the rainforest there. So they get income from the actual ecosystem that they're operating in. And thirdly and finally, we've got a partnership with the US government, USAID, to actually pay for the value of that income in terms of the long-term value to society, i.e. if families have income, that's better for their livelihoods, they send their kids to school, that will ultimately grow the GDP of Liberia. So that has an actual value, which the US government's paying for. And by having those three separate revenue sources, farming, carbon and biodiversity credits, and payments for the livelihood outcomes around education and prosperity, then you've actually got an investable business model. So that's something that we're actually applying philanthropic investment capital to that will ultimately get repaid through that business model. And we want to find similar solutions in mangrove and other coastal marine ecosystems. And we need to find them pretty quickly, because as we know, there is literally a burning platform here, a burning planet. And these economies will not achieve their own growth ambitions unless they start to, to find ways to do this in a fully integrated way. So our clients are passionate about that. We're passionate about that. And we're delighted to find people like Alejandro, who, who have the ambition and the courage to try to do this, not in a couple of small pilots, but to think that we're going to scale it up to 40 cities as rapidly as we can. As soon as we identify things that work, we're going to try and scale it. And that's the way we're trying to think. Uh, Well, yeah. And as you say, fundamental to that is making sure you can tap the kind of innovative approaches that visionaries like Alejandro bring to the table. Alejandro, let me ask you, Tom was talking there about measurable impact, you know, on a GDP level almost. But tell me about what you measure. What are some of the metrics here in terms of how Earth Security works, your analysis that you conduct? What do you measure and how do you seek to track meaningful progress with the measurements that you're taking? Yeah, no, thank you. Look, first, perhaps I wanted to build on Tom's point to talk a little bit about what that business model in shrimp farming really looks like in terms of the alternatives. And we're starting a pilot with local companies and organizations that are seeking to produce shrimps in a different way, in balance with mangroves. And how does that work economically? So you take a pond and they're focusing on 20% of the pond to intensify production. And based on the low productivity that exists today in these ponds, they could increase production by a factor of 50, right? So 50 times more production in just 20% of the pond. And then these organizations can use the 80% of the remaining pond to replant mangroves and regrow them. So effectively what you have is a much more integrated system of more intensified production, but at the same time the regeneration of the ecosystem. And if you do that not in just one pond, but in the scalable potential in Indonesia alone, which is 600,000 hectares, where the government is already trying to increase aquaculture production because of food security, then you have a lot of the, you know, you have the business model and you have the conditions to scale as local government starts to see the demonstration of how, how these models can work. So from an impact measurement perspective, what we are doing is creating that impact framework that can capture 
multidimensional impacts of these models. You know, one of them is surely the blue carbon that can be stored, you know, so we can measure the blue carbon, but we can also measure the coastal protection, the numbers of people and the dollar value of physical assets of buildings that are being protected by mangroves that stand behind these forests. We can measure the community benefits and livelihoods and, of course, the the benefits to the local economy. And, and that's where you really get the sense of local impact economies that you can measure because you're measuring so many different benefits that a different way of thinking about business models can, can bring. So we're actively working, you know, we find these models, we find those companies that are trying things out and we work with them to prove the investment case and then connect them to a range of investors. And here, of course, working with the UBS community is incredibly catalytic. Now, what is interesting is that we're talking about this and, and perhaps listeners are wondering, okay, but this is in Indonesia, it's really far away, right? And all I want to say is that when you start to think about this model on scale, you start to realize that it's not just a city in, in Indonesia, it's not just Jakarta that has this problem, but it's also places like Miami. You know, Miami is sitting in one of the biggest mangrove hotspots in the world, which has been largely cleared. And as a result, you know, you have this very expensive real estate that is incredibly exposed to what we know are rising storms and it's becoming more and more uninsurable. And so you start to see, you know, the scale of opportunity as, as you start to prove not just these innovative business models on, on shrimps, but also innovative business models of how cities might build protection infrastructure using these mangroves. It is much cheaper. You know, in the, the, there's a study in the Philippines that shows that it is 50 times cheaper to plant a mangrove as a form of protection than to invest in a cement seawall. And if you think about it, you know, the cement seawall is very carbon intensive, while the mangrove wall is, is going to be carbon negative, it's going to be sequestering carbon as it grows and creating all these other opportunities. You know, I guess the last point is you have the business models, you, we can analyze them, we can coach them, we can connect them, we can measure their impact in a scalable and replicable way. Now, the key question is, how do you fund these projects? And this is really a, a critical point where we need to also start thinking more dynamically, more catalytically about the funding, because some of the funding will have to be strategic philanthropy. But the question is, how do we use that philanthropy catalytically to help these projects become more and more investable and to capture more commercial types of funding? And this is where the concept of blended finance comes in where you can align different kinds of capital. You know, if you take the work that UBS is doing, you know, around using philanthropy catalytically to attract commercial capital, how does that work? And what does blended finance mean? And let me give you one example. In many, many cases, grants can be used in these projects to fund either the feasibility studies or a lot of the upfront costs that generally investors would not fund, or it could be used to fund first losses. So uh, you can have grants coming in and saying, you know, we're making a commercial investment in the shrimp farm, but if the project doesn't work, we are going to be the first one to lose that investment. And that first loss actually changes completely the risk and return equation for a private investor and makes these projects you know, more palatable. So there's a lot of creativity that needs to happen. We have the templates, we have a playbook for blended finance for nature that we've developed with all of these different options. And now it's just a question of rapidly identifying these models and working with them and stakeholders to take those to scale. Well, Tom, let me ask you about blended finance, because I was going to touch upon that earlier. And it's really interesting, isn't it, in terms of what that affords in terms of support for social entrepreneurs like Alejandro to scale and sustain the innovations that they're devising. Tell us a bit about how blended finance works in this space and why it's important in realising some of those goals. At the heart of blended finance is, from a philanthropist's perspective, they could 
fund an individual school or a child or an individual mangrove project and they could just give the money, right? And then it's gone forever. Or, as an overlay on that, they could take more of a social finance approach. Maybe they could lend to that shrimp farm or that mangrove program and get repaid. Or invest in a low-cost private school and get repaid. That, that's definitely more efficient and better, right? So why would you give your money away if you can get the same impact and recycle it? The idea of blended finance is going one step further than that and saying, well, if I'm going to invest it in a business model, wouldn't it be amazing if that investment was leveraged by other investors? And then the question you ask is, well, how can I make that happen? What, what's the trade-off I need to do as a philanthropic investor to crowd in more investment? Because then from an investor's perspective, the question they're asking is, is this too risky for me to invest in a mangrove intervention or into a low-cost private school? Yeah, it probably is because the country risk is too high, the currency risk is too high. Oh, this is an innovative business model that I've never even seen before that can't possibly do it, right? So, so what we're seeing as a systemic issue globally is there's demand. We think that there's $81 trillion in the hands of millennials and women who say that they want impact from their investments. But the capital's not flowing to where it's most needed. And the reason it's not flowing to where it's most needed is because of real and perceived risks. And, and they're both, let's be honest. There's, there's real risks in new business models. There's real risks in FX. There's real risks in geopolitical consequences. But there's also perceived risk. You know, the cost of a student loan in Rwanda is 40% APR. 40%. I mean, I don't know anyone who's paid more than 10% on their student credit in, in any low, in upper middle income country. So a lot of that is just a perception like, oh, they're less likely to repay this. It's just fundamentally not true. So what a philanthropist can do in blended finance is just reassure investors. And sometimes it's a 20% first loss position. Sometimes it's a 50% first loss position. But essentially what we're saying is, look, yes, we understand that there's some risks, both perceived and real, that you are worried about. And therefore, that's why capital's not flowing to countries like Indonesia for climate mitigation programs. We, as philanthropic investors who want to see this impact in those communities most affected by inequality, we're willing to bear that risk. We also want to get our capital back, by the way, but we're willing to absorb losses if these business models don't work. And then essentially, the calculus for an investor is, how likely is it that this business model, which will have a track record, you do the same due diligence you do from any investment, assess the fund manager, assess the the underlying operating businesses, you look at their cash flows, how likely clear is it that that business is going to lose half its value or, or 20% of its value? And if they're reassured that it's very, very unlikely and you can do your kind of complicated Monte Carlo models and, you know, you're probably not going to be doing actual ratings because they cost too much for the size of a lot of these blended finance mechanisms today. But as this scales, that's obviously the direction of travel. Then an investor can go, yeah, that now looks sensible. And particularly those investors who have a fiduciary duty to only invest for risk return reasons. and The impact is a nice to have, but they can't have that as part of their investment making decision. They can start coming into these kinds of investments. We've seen this in action. We're just in the process of raising a $100 million blended finance fund. 20 million of that is philanthropic capital. And the philanthropists are expecting that to recycle and be reused multiple times. And then we have actual investors coming in, even pension funds and insurance companies at the top of the capital stack, who are essentially capital and yield protected by the blend. And that's allowing them literally to invest in some of the poorest communities in the world, in education, in climate initiatives. So it's a really exciting model. And it's how we think we can start to square the circle between the five trillion or so that will be in philanthropy by the end of the decade which is simply not enough. You can't, if you give away 5 trillion, you're not going to solve the $30 trillion sustainable development goal problem, including all the issues that we have around nature-based solutions and the climate crisis. But happily, as I said, there's 80 to 100 trillion in wealth management capital that is happy 
and looking for impact as long as it can get a fair market return. And I think by bringing those two together, I'm convinced that we can actually rapidly move the dial in terms of getting capital to where it's needed to really address some of these issues and build this impact economy where people and planet is priced into every investment decision. And ultimately, we're building a world that's profitable for everybody. And I think one of the things that people often think about is we're not just doing this because it's the right thing to do. We're doing this because it's good for the world. If we meet the sustainable development goals, we add additional $12 trillion to the global economy globally, 380 million new jobs. It's creating a genuinely prosperous and profitable world for everyone. So that's why it's, it's in our interest to try and build these kinds of partnerships where the right actors play the right role to really move the dial. And, and within that, obviously, is the innovation. And, and I think one of the challenges we've got is we, we do, particularly with the climate crisis, have to ideate and scale rapidly. Because if we don't, it actually gets into a pretty dangerous situation for, for all of us. And that's where perhaps we're, we're looking to speed up the curve between proving out what works and then scaling it up in a way that we haven't had to in the past. And that comes with some more risk, obviously. But again, there's, the capital is there to do that. And I think the thinking is there and we're going to try and it's really exciting. Well, yeah. And just at that point, then, Alejandro, let me come back to you. Talk a little bit about the specific support that you need in this mission. I guess it's about connecting that capital, which, as Tom has explained, it's there. And there's the willingness, there's the awareness of the essentialism of directing it at the problem. But what's the specific support you need at joining the dots uh, together and ensuring that the kinds of solutions you've identified, trialled, validated, are delivered at scale and in a sustainable way. What, what do you actually need to see from here on? Yeah, look, we need to do two things, really. You know, One is to very quickly find and begin to validate these business models on a more rapid scale, right? And we're starting to do that, but we can go faster and we need to go wider. And, you know, one example I would give you is we've been talking a lot about shrimp farming. I mean, this is quite a grassroots activity, in particular in Southeast Asia. But, you know, there's also bigger ways of thinking about change. You know, we've been talking to engineering companies that are building ports and that are also starting to think from the corporate strategy perspective that they could be using blue ecosystems such as mangroves, coral reefs and, and seagrasses and so on as part of how they think about the engineering solutions. Now, when you can start to think about that corporate finance and, and who's going to provide the capital to drive that type of infrastructure, you're also starting to stack up other opportunities, other business models. You know, I was talking about Miami before, and, and in fact, Miami has been a big inspiration for us because they issued a what is called the Miami Forever Bond a couple of years ago, which is basically a plain capital market bond for the municipal bond market in the US, which is very developed, which would invest in Miami's resilience, you know, and a lot of it is going towards gray infrastructure. But within that bond issuance from the municipality, there is earmarked investments for for mangroves or for what is called green gray infrastructure, which is combining both. And again, you know, many of the cities, coastal cities across the tropics, they don't have that ability to issue bonds into capital markets. They don't have the ratings that are needed, they don't have the access to markets. But there's a way of thinking about bonds and bond issuances from an impact perspective that could also provide, you know, that replicable model that can begin to appeal to investors that are looking at fixed income and, and other products as well. So just to illustrate that within those domains, th those are going to be a little bit more difficult to create. But 
where you have mayors that see the opportunity, where, where, the, where you have the cities that are really seeing the opportunity to position themselves in this agenda, there's a huge opportunity to then start to think about some of these investable models on a, on a bigger scale. And so we need to keep doing that. We need to bring the data, that analytics and that collaboration with those pioneering organizations to show how this model can be investable. Then the second thing that we need to do and is to really think about what is the infrastructure for scale? Right? I mean, how do you scale? How do you build the necessary networks? How do you build the outreach to all of these different locations to show them what that playbook looks like? And so for us right now, the, the big emphasis is on really creating a robust playbook of options, of business models, of solutions that we show how they work and how they can be invested. What is the rate of return? What is the risk return profile? And how do you blend capital in each of those? And then, therefore, the second question is, how do you, what is the scaffolding for scale? How do we start to build not just those networks, but how do we use technology to create that peer-to-peer connectivity between capital and even different types of capital on the one hand and the projects on the other? You know, and so that's one of the horizon questions for us, you know, and we're very interested in working with organizations and providers, you know, to start to figure that out. Partly because creating a fund in the traditional sense may just not be fit for purpose to invest and facilitate, let's say, capital flows at the scale that is required. That's in a way the next challenge, you know, so uh, these are the sort of things that we're working on. Maybe just finally, if I can get you both to address this question. If we have uh, individuals or organisations indeed, any any number of different stakeholders listening to this kind of discussion and recognising the need for action and that they have the means to shape the space, what should they do? I guess, Tom, we've talked a little bit about this before. The first thing is to furnish yourself with more information. Pick up the phone and talk to someone, I don't know, like yourself and see how you can join the dots. But what would you say as a, as a call to action in terms of what people need to do if they're motivated to actually try and make a difference? I mean, I, I do think it is, it is all about one word, which is partnerships. No one can do this alone. And we need to bring together, you know, whether it's philanthropists, social investors, investors, pension companies, businesses, social enterprises, on the ground communities, and of course, governments together to kind of identify solutions. And as Alejandro was saying, you know, build new types of products where different people play different roles in it, whether it's capacity building or taking a first loss position. And no one can do that on their own. So I genuinely think if people are passionate about this and want to work, then Go find people to partner with who you think are are smart, who've got sensible ideas. No one has all the ideas and there's definitely, there's no silver bullet to this issue. There's no one thing that's going to solve it. Can't just plant a trillion trees as I think what came out. You know, you've got to find systemic, sustainable, investable solutions and business models. I just reiterate that I do think we're in in a moment in history which is truly unique. We've seen unprecedented global wealth creation over the last 20 years. The global value of billionaires has gone from 1 trillion to 8 trillion. And a lot of that resource, not all of it, but a lot of that resource is genuinely dedicated to try and address issues like this, to solve the pressing social and environmental problems the, the world's facing. And it can't do it alone. We can't give that money away and solve these issues. But it can catalyze sustainable and investable pathways. And I'll just give you one example that we've all benefited from recently, the mRNA vaccine hundreds of millions of dollars of philanthropic capital that accelerated R&D that VC would never have done because it was way too risky. The pharmaceutical industry would never have done that on its own. That was catalyzed and accelerated by philanthropic capital. And then the follow investment could come and we're all back at work way faster because of that. And we need to create those kind of intentional partnerships where we're intentionally doing that, where everyone knows what role they're going to play in advance. And that's when I think, you know, we can really start to see rapidly shifting the dial and creating investable pathways to solve these kinds of issues. 
Alejandro, to you too. It's interesting. We keep hearing this idea about catalyzing impact and catalyzing collaboration, I guess, is at the heart of any fix. Yeah, look, this is really the DNA, you know, of, of how we need to keep working from now on. I, I would add to the partnerships, the platforms. You know, it's another P, let's say, but, uh, but it's the infrastructure for scale, right? To really work out, I mean, how, if we had a solution for a city and show how investment can flow and how they can invest in mangroves for coastal protection, how can we scale that to... 40, 50, 100 other cities that are in very similar conditions, you know, perhaps very different incomes. I mean, Miami is very different from Mongla, which is the second largest city in Bangladesh, which is also exposed to climate change and within the mangroves. But in order to to reach and replicate and scale, we will need the partnerships that form platforms. You know, these platforms could be global initiatives. It could be technology platforms. It could be even a magazine like Monocle, of which I'm a huge fan, you know, taking on the issue of cities and nature-based solutions and really driving that knowledge agenda so that mayors around the world will get inspired. And, and sort of we need to think about that, that collaboration, but how do we build the new architecture, you know, to rapidly scale these opportunities as far and as wide as we can. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS, setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle Radio. Big thanks to Tom Hall and to Alejandro Litovsky. For more about all the global visionaries in the UBS programme, just head to UBS.com and search Global Visionaries. And to read more about the work of Alejandro and his team, head to earthsecurity.org. You can contact them and sign up for updates there too. In the meantime, listen again to this and every episode, including our archive of other brilliant visionaries at monocle.com and across all good audio and podcast platforms. This is The Bulletin with UBS here on Monocle Radio. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.